Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Matt Jones, Executive Principal of ARC Schools and Principal of ARC Globe Academy, a leading education charity and one of the country's top performing academy operators. Matt, hello. Morning, Matthew. Thank you for coming on the program today. We might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? Leader, if you use that term uh, generically, would be someone who is able to um, influence, shape, mobilize people to achieving a particular objective or aim. Um, and it, obviously that can manifest itself in many different arenas, stroke sectors. But put it succinctly, that is how I would consider a leader. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? Well, that's an interesting question because that's changed through time. I think in the first instance, I had a view that um, other than providing a clear vision, one of the core purposes of leadership is to put in the structures, systems and environment to help people flourish. So put crudely, uh, my leadership style when I first became a principal was much more focused on articulating a vision, which is true for all leaders, whatever phase of leadership or your organization is in. But then I focused very much on processes and systems. As the systems became embedded in the current context that I work in, what I've become, what I came to realize is that actually leadership is much more about people and how you engage people, how you inspire people, how you help people to be better versions of themselves. So um, my leadership has changed in that respect. When I first came into the organization, it was around about systems and processes and sharing a compelling vision. But as the, the organization matures, it's around leading the, leading the talent, making sure that um, they're able to flourish in that environment. So much more centered on uh, people and their skills and their development. Well, leading people is, a, is another challenge that uh, one doesn't think often, often with leadership is that uh, people are imperfect uh, beings. They're not always at their best. And sometimes they do have difficulties with one another. How do you handle conflict within your organization? Well, the first thing is to depersonalize the conflict. So there's two ways that we do that at uh, Art Globe and within the Art Network. Firstly, uh, it's being sure about the, the values and beliefs in which you work to and hold each other to account so that what you're discussing doesn't become uh, a fundamental discussion about beliefs and or values. What it then becomes uh, is about the work. And so uh, the key thing around the resolving conflict is making sure that we all have a shared understanding of what we're trying to achieve and how we're going to do it. And then we can have a conflict, inverted commas, over the precise detail of the plan or the next steps, which is easier to resolve in terms of those interpersonal feelings around um, this um, discourse or uh, disagreement, because what we should be able to coalesce around is a shared understanding of what we're trying to achieve, but moreover, the parameters in which we behave around the the issue are clearly articulated for our vision and our mission, our values and our beliefs. Hmm. Let's go back to the very beginning of your career when you first started out in your working life. Were there any particular influences or individuals who shaped the way that you lead today? 
So one of the uh, individuals who really supported me in my growth as a professional was my um, second head teacher, actually, uh, in a school out in um, Essex. And um, his name was Graham Abel. And um, what he did was really inculcate a, a community feel to the school. And I remember it was a, it was a local authority school. Most schools were in those days. But he was a, one of the first head teachers to uh, switch to what would the precursor be to the academies, which was a grant-maintained school. And one of the first things I noticed that he did when we arrived back in September is that all the support staff all of a sudden had the name of the school emblazoned on their clothing rather than, for example, the, the ground staff having the local authority um, uh, clothing and um, and branding. It was very quickly switched to this school. You're a member of our community uh, and we work together to achieve our, our aims. And he was instrumental in my thinking about how schools and leadership can impact on wider communities by creating a sense of identity and belonging. And what I learned from that very early experience was things around, actually, you know, you can inspire people to achieve great things if they're better interconnected to each other and have that shared vision of what can benefit the community. So he was instrumental in my first steps into the education sector. But I would say um, in a previous life, inverted commas, I used to be a professional footballer. And uh, there have been a number of things that I've learned through uh, being part of a, a very explicit and overt team and uh, managers and coaches who have influenced me in that sphere. And um, the thing about sport is that the goal is pretty much, uh, or in football, pretty much explicit. We need to win football matches. But what I've learned from the different managers and different coaches I've played for is that you can win in a, a different ways with a different style and different emphasis. And what you tend to find is that the best leaders, stroke coaches, stroke head teachers, stroke business leaders are very clear about um, how they're going to um, achieve their objectives. It's not just the objective in itself. It's, you know, this is how we do it. This is how we behave and this is uh, how we act with each other. And that's been very clear. So different managers from a manager who I first had at um, Southend United, a guy called David Webb, was very clear about how we were going to do things. And then I played a, a, a considerable amount of time for a team called Dagenham Redbridge and a manager there, uh, Gary Hill, was clear about the team ethic. No one's more important than the team. And he had a real high expectation around certain behaviours that I would argue are not typically expected um, particularly at the time around professional footballers, but you know he he used to weigh us every week, so we had to um, eat a certain way, not drink excessive alcohol, mm -hmm. which um, back in the early days wasn't typical of uh, footballers' experience. But he clearly set the standards and, and held us to account to those standards. And how did you integrate your experience as a winger onto uh, working at a school? I think the first thing I take from it is that within a, a functioning team, what we often do is you sacrifice your own immediate short-term gain or advantage for the benefit of the team and the bigger picture and the outcome. So I take that into school, which is within schools, which are complex organizations. You've got multiple uh, teams within the school all trying to achieve their own bit towards a bigger aim, but sometimes that's because we're human beings that they can get very caught up in their own area of responsibility without seeing the bigger picture or understanding how it connects with other aspects of school life. And so one of my main roles as a leader at the school at the moment is to ensure that 
everybody's focused on the bigger picture and our, our objective and at Globus are preparing students for university and be leaders in our community. That's a strap line we come back to every single time when there's a, a potential internal conflict of interest. And it is around, we make small sacrifices so that the, the bigger objective, the ambition that we have for our students can be achieved um, through that sort of negotiation around what are the priorities at any given moment in time. And do you feel um, as a leader in a school setting, because of course you're not dealing with one group of stakeholders, you're dealing with two or three different types of stakeholders, the staff, the students and the parents. Um, Do you feel that each group requires its own specific form of leadership? I think with, when you're dealing with um, students in an environment where you have 1,400 people in a closed space uh, moving from room to room. One of the key things around that is you've got to try to drive for operational excellence, which does mean just kind of a, a more management approach to things rather than leadership. So if I say that management is making sure that the students are doing the right thing at the right time. Um, and so that, that would be slightly nuanced to what I how I would lead the staff team, which is you're working with highly committed, I, I say that highly committed now at Globe Academy, highly committed staff who want to do the, uh, the right thing. And so within that sort of nuance, you would it, try to empower them more, coach them more, ask them more questions so they can find their own solutions to their professional problems. Uh, and, and with parents, you know, I'm a parent myself, uh, and quite clearly, they just want the school to do what's right for them. So as long as you communicate effectively through different mediums around what you're doing and why you're doing it, and when you have the opportunity in group settings, for example, at parents' evening or open days, be really explicit about what the expectations are, parents usually and more often not come on board. So there is a slight nuance with the students. It's much more around management, managing the systems and process for the for the day, for my teaching adults and the adults who work here, it's about coaching and developing them and asking them how they would solve their own problems. And then with parents, it's really effective communication about what we expect at Globe and how we help their children and their family. Now, unfortunately, our time together is very quickly drawing to its close. But what does the next 12 months have in store for ARC schools? So for ARC Globe Academy and the other school, even Grace, I'm leading uh, with the principal there. The primary aim over both schools is to ensure that our students maximise their talent. And I know that sounds a bit um, generic and a bit trite, but put simply, whatever we're doing uh, in our schools has got to have a positive impact on learners and our children. And Mm -hmm. I don't just mean in terms of their hard outcomes in relation to GCSEs or A-levels, but developing the whole person. So how are we interacting with our young people to make sure that they're given the best advice, uh, the best support and best guidance, as well as the academic grades to make the next step in their um, development and or employment or education. With staff, however, I think the biggest challenge we face in the sector is, and particularly if you're working in a context that you've got multiple challenges around the, the community that the community face, one of the big things is making sure that we are efficient around what we do so that we can buy back time so that staff can take care of themselves and get that um, well-being element into their life at a much more manageable and consistent level. Um, so they're the two things that we're working on. Great outcomes for students, academic uh, and developmental 
uh, outcomes. And then for adults, how can we improve efficiency to ensure that their well-being is well managed and that they can have a, a, a meaningful experience both in school and at home. Well, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you. And I very much hope you come back on the program at some point in the near future. Matt, thank you. My, pl- my pleasure, Matthew. That was Matt Jones, executive principal of Ox Schools. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago. 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it Peters I think probably well I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did again mm-hmm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. What a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that 
the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier and played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge when it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years he, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you. And you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in your organization, one thing I have learned, and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment? I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that, that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that 
it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, if maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year and they've gone fairly well and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows in fact starting this week over the next uh, two or three months and uh, at the end of the theatre shows we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions and the, the, there's I won't mention both they're too long to talk about both questions um, one the other one's a really stupid one it's too long for me to tell you it's absolutely ridiculous yeah. but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's uh, 
but I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot in the ball and waited to just have a, have a glance around, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It's too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey, or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um... Uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses itself, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, me laugh if you, that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see this happened when you must have realized that people teammates began looking at you for leadership um is that something that occurred to you or did you just realize that by by quick one way or the other people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration well possibly that's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now quite frankly that's a new a new question mm. does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? 
Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding, I think the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is, is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they, they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood. Yeah, the answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, good they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes I can elaborate as much as you want but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so but um, I'm conscious of the um, time um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, so many, yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I've been going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't I'm... when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category. 
that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude (laughs) alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly. Uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership, all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to, nice to have a talk about this and just go over the, go over the past and just uh, refresh my, mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.